With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. This is BC Radio Live with Philip and Eric. Live online at blogtalkradio.com slash Radio. Aloha! This is Wednesday night, February 27th, 2008, and this is BC Radio Live. Tonight, our guest, Black 47, is an Irish-American rock band based in New York. They are very political and thoroughly Irish, and their latest album is called Iraq. It is due out next Tuesday, March 4th, and tonight we will speak with lead singer, band leader, guitarist Larry Kerwin. We are having technical issues with the chat room tonight, so there will be no live video for this segment. I am Philip Wynn, Chief Geek at BC Magazine, and I am joined tonight by Eric Olson, founder and publisher of BC Magazine. Hi, Eric. Philip, hello. Good to hear from you. And also with us tonight is Lisa McKay, executive editor of BC Magazine. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Good evening, gentlemen. So we're saying we have no chat room? We, uh, I can't seem to get into the chat room. That's correct. Well, this is very unfortunate. Good golly, Miss Molly. Well, I'm sure you'll keep trying. We we seem to uh, <laughs> last week. What what happened last week? We couldn't get into the phones at all for like 20 yeah, minutes or something. Last year, the last year the switchboard locked up on me for the first. Uh, I, I went back and listened. It was only the first six minutes of the show. It it felt like roughly an hour. Yeah, you did a pretty good job covering. I must say. You ran through the roster of all our shows and started explaining everything that surrounded you in the room. No, No, it was good. You did a good job. Well, hopefully we'll be able to get some audio samples from Black 47 a a little later in the show. Right now there there seems to be a delay with that as well. Well, maybe Larry can perform them for us over the phone. Oh, that's right. Kind of an, uh, an audio, live audio acapella performance perhaps. Well, maybe so. Let's, let's a lot of pressure, ahead. I must say. But <laughs> Let's go ahead and talk to Larry. Uh, the band is Black 47. Uh, their new album is called Iraq. Uh, Iraq is the band's first release on the United for Opportunity label and will be released next week, Tuesday, March 4th. Uh, Black 47 are touring in support of the album. You can find out if they're playing, playing near you at either their website, black47.com, or the label website, ufomusic.com. Tonight, we are very privileged to be able to spend uh, close to an hour with Larry Kerwin, leader of Black 47. Welcome to BC Radio Live, Larry. How you doing? Philip, we are exceptionally well. How are you? I'm okay. You're in New York City. So now, you're clearly Irish, but I, I know you're New York-based. Are, are you from Ireland, personally? Yeah, I'm from Ireland originally, a small oh. town called Wexford on the southeast corner of Ireland. And I emigrated here in the mid-70s, and uh, I've lived in New York pretty much ever since. 
you're practically a native. Yeah, probably more so than most at this point. Well, I do hear. I hear a little. I hear the mid-Atlantic aspect to the accent because, of course, I can. I can hear the Irish, but it's not nearly as as severe as as some. So I mean, it's definitely leavened with with uh, some U.S. there. So it, it is a classic mid-Atlantic accent. Yeah, I I didn't try to keep the Irish. It's not that I tried to get rid of it either. I just have a sharp ear, so I, I listen to accents. I'm a playwright also, so maybe that's part of the reason you know you pick up something. I, I hear it sometimes, especially when I go back to Ireland. I hear the broad A's, you know, but um, we. Everybody in Ireland speaks different. They speak quicker. That's why Irish people tend to think of Americans as more stupid. <laughs> I mean, it's because the case, of the rapidity right? of their speech? Due to the rapidity, yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's not just uh, who we elect president? Oh, well, they, they got that one down pretty well. <laughs> no, just in general, I always find it... Uh, uh, kind of strange because I slowed down my accent when I came over here, slowed down my method of speech because you get tired eventually people saying, what? You know, because people speak a little slower. But from being here, I realized that doesn't mean people are stupider because they speak slower, but Irish people tend to think that. Well, sure. Anyone who's faster at anything than anyone tends to feel superior to those right. who slower. Whether it be speech or foot speed or uh, typing speed or probably you know pretty much anything. What brought you here in the mid seventies? What what was the draw? Oh, adventure. <laughs> you know, just to see a different world. It was um, in Ireland. Everyone's Irish at that point. Anyways, it's it's changed very much in the last ten, fifteen years. But at that point, everybody there was very homogenous. And it was just a great thrill to land in the middle of New York City and, uh, you know, be be thrown into the midst of this multicultural society in a way that we would never, couldn't even, never even imagine it in Ireland. I mean, you see the movies and everything, but, you know, movies and media are all planned to look a certain way, but you get into New York. At that point, well... We know now, there's very little planned in New York. Yeah, well, at that point, nothing was planned. It was it was pretty much out of control. But say, for instance, Times Square wouldn't be the place to look at multiculturalism anymore. Canal Street would be down on the, you know, because it's not touristy. Right, right. Times Square has certainly been cleaned up, hasn't it? Yeah, totally. It looks different. It looks very different to me now. It is. It's been Disneyfied. Well, not even that. The, the lights are all different. You know, it's much more brightly lit now. Sure. Because in the winter times, we play in a place called Connolly's on 45th Street. We do a a winter Saturday night residency there, and I often come out, you know, at three in the morning and look down Times Square, and you'll see, you know, tourists walking by with their Bloomingdale shopping bags and whatever. And back in the day, you wouldn't have dreamed of identifying yourself as actually having something of value on you <laughs> right you're going you're to be ripped <laughs> off yeah. i remember wandering times square as an 18 uh, year old so that would be uh uh 76 i guess and uh-huh. uh, uh it was a pretty scary place yeah it was a very tough place 
you had to, you know, be on your guard, and you were going to be panhandled, and <laughs> you were going to be kind of buffeted about. But yeah, it was it was exciting too. <laughs> if they could tell that you you weren't used to it, right? But you know, you you grew up you grew up quickly there, because you only got ripped off once, and then you realize, well, that's it. Yeah. Right. And then you toughen up and become a lot more wary and all exactly, of that. Yeah. Were you a musician already when you came? Is that is that what you came here to do? Yeah, yeah pretty much. Yeah. I had a guitar and. Uh, yeah, I got gigs in bars. When you get really hungry, you can go into a bar and say, you have to hire me. <laughs> yeah. With a hungry, lean look. Yeah, well, uh, maybe not even the look, but <laughs> the actual hunger. <laughs> the reality is. The reality of hunger is I'm playing. You know, maybe you're not going to pay me, but maybe you will, too. Yeah. Well, there's always tips, I suppose. Tips in this food, yeah. Did you, were you playing, um, you know, quote-unquote traditional Irish stuff? Were you already doing originals? Were you doing kind of more rocking stuff like you've, you know, evolved toward? Or, or was that a, a folkier kind of feel back then? No, Ireland, Ireland was very mixed musically. You know, you could get everything from rockabilly to classical there. And then it was leaving by traditional music because there was a folk boom going on back in Ireland. So you knew a lot of songs that would be known out here too but then you know a buddy holly song is a buddy holly song in dublin and it's one in new york you know it's a it's a common standard or Nettie cochran one or the beatles or whatever you know so you were playing rock and roll i was playing rock and roll and i was playing traditional you know but more you know traditional that would get help you stay alive in a tough bar. <laughs> yeah. hey, speaking of Buddy Holly, I, I hear that you ha- you own a, a Buddy Holly guitar. I, You know, that's funny because the last interview I did up at Sirius, I said I owned a, a Jimi Hendrix one. Is this, is it's this on your website. PR? It's on your website, dude. Oh, I, I, yeah, that's a big joke. Yeah. It's in the Q&A yeah. section. Oh, right. Yeah. I was wondering how they got that. Yeah. Well, they were researching, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah, I was, you know, reading through the site and boning up and uh, said, but yeah, I said you had a, a Buddy Holly uh, Fender and a, and a, and a, something Hendrix played once or something or touched or looked in the direction of or spat at or something. That's there was a right. Hendrix connection there. It's all lies, though. It's oh, okay. Right, well, the very next sentence does say that he also owns a bridge in Brooklyn that he's considering putting on the market. Ah, well, right. so there you go. But my guitar was so battered up. I, I have a, a guitar, a Sunburst, a, a Fender Strat, the same, one, the same type that Buddy Holly and Bob Dylan and Hendrix used. So people would always come up to me and say, you know, that's got to be a 65 because it has so much wear and tear on it. And I would think, no, it's actually a 92. You know, he was just beating the hell out of it. And then finally I began to think, yeah, the hell with him, you know. Sure, Buddy Holly owned it. (laughs) (laughs) And they're happy. All right. Well, I I should have picked up on the, obviously, on the Brooklyn Bridge angle. That uh, well, it's still going. Which I, I send me a grand, and I'll, I'll send you the deeds to it. Okay, well, that's that's a deal, it's man. Pretty good. I used that's to charge like, five. That's, so. like a, that's worthy of eBay. I mean, that's yeah. that's really a that's something of a deal. I can get you a good price on the Williamsburg too. 
Hey, when you mention the the, the multiculturalism, um, you know how how that much that's changed in Ireland. I, it made me think of the Academy Awards, and here was this uh, Irish couple, and and the woman has this you know rather extravagantly Eastern European name, and then when and when she spoke, she had a really interesting combination of Irish, Czech, and Dublin. Yeah. yeah. I, I do a show on um, I do I do a number of shows on Sirius Satellite Radio. I, I saw that we just started getting it. I'm going to listen to them. I actually interviewed them, and I was struck by the same thing because yeah, I could hear the Dublin, and yet I'd been to Czechoslovakia and could hear the the Czech. It's, it's a pretty fascinating accent. <laughs> so, what do you think about that? How, how do you uh, like the the movie and the and the the album, or just their music in general? It's wonderful. Glenn Hansard is an old friend of mine, and uh, he's Got to be one of the nicest people in show business. Very earnest, um, very honest, beautiful kind of person. So it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Their performance was really powerful. I mean, it really yeah. was beautiful, and their voices blended so well. I mean, I, I really did get tingles watching it. I, you know, and I'm fairly jaded, I suppose. They're so, real. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it was really very beautiful, and, and uh, I mean, you could really tell. And John Stewart, the host, made a big deal about it. I mean, you know, he was clearly moved. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was really neat. Real is an unusual term nowadays. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it really felt real. You're right. It was it was very here and now and genuine. There was nothing contrived about it. It was, And it's a beautiful song. Yeah, it is. Well, let's or, talk about, speaking of beautiful songs, you guys have... Have done ten, and is this the tenth? Is Rack the tenth or 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 eleventh? You know, I don't know. I I someday I'll have to go back, sit down, and count them. Well, it's on the site. Either tenth we'll, or eleventh. We'll, I don't we'll, think it's twelfth. So they're listed you know, on the site. Let, let, let's see if I can come up with a, a way to play a little bit of a song here. We're we're still running into some technical issues, but I'm going to see if I can come up with a, a very lo-fi way of giving us a, a sample of the ballad of Cindy Sheehan. Well, <laughs> didn't come out here. It doesn't seem to be working. But Philip being the tech whiz that he is, I mean, we know he'll stay on it like a bulldog. He'll be on it tenaciously. Yeah. Uh, and I just uh, listened uh, about three times in a row to Iraq today. And uh, speaking of real and powerful, it, it really is. It's quite a statement. It really holds up together. It's very unified. And uh, it's it's really very powerful. I, I was I really could feel your empathy with with these people. You know, I mean, they felt like real people. The stories you were telling, and I guess in in many cases they are real people, right? Well, they are. They're extensions of real people. I would say. Okay. We're looking at it. It's a mixture of uh, fact and fiction. You know, I often compare. Well, I don't compare the album in, in any sense, but. I was using as a template for the album the Ernest Hemingway book, For Whom the Bell Tolls, so that if you really wanted to learn about the Spanish Civil War, it's kind of hopeless to go into textbooks because you don't really get the feel of it. But if you pick up his novel, For Whom the Bell Tolls, you're immediately amidst all the color and the atmosphere of the Spanish Civil War and that clues you into a textbook then. So 
that was the idea behind Iraq was to really get people to get away from the 30-second sound bites and to get a feel of what it's like to be a young person, a young American person, thrown into the cauldron that is Iraq. So it's a, it, it's almost like a, a dipping, as it were, is the way I look at it. Yeah, and and, and I, I think you, I mean, clearly you have a, a certain perspective, you know, an opinion overall that comes through, but I think you also do a real good job of reflecting various perspectives you know, within the characters. I mean, not everything is just, you know, absolutely broadly anti-war. I mean, you know, you're you're seeing things from the inside, and it, it looks like you did an awful lot of research. It's it's uh, really a, a powerful work. I think people are going to respond well to it. I assume you've been playing it live. Yeah, we've been. Well, we were against the war, Black Forty Seven, from before the war even, because we knew it was coming and knew it was going to be a disaster. You didn't have to be a a brain surgeon or a rocket scientist to tell that you can't go into a country halfway around the world that is already riven with a sectarian divide, a religious divide that goes back 1,400 years and expect to come out of it with the Western-style democracy that you, you were hoping to do. So to us, it was a this was a no-no from the start, so... Pretty soon after the war, I wrote the first song, Downtown Baghdad Blues. And that came out on an album previously, a different version of it. That and uh, one song towards the end called Southside Chicago Waltz. And they became popular through Black 47 fans taking them to Iraq when they were serving or exchanging MP3s. So they were actually popular over there. So through that, I met more people who, through emails, basically, who were writing to me and reflecting what was going on there. Now, many of them were actually into, not into being there, but believed this was a just war. But at the same time, you could you could get the flavor of the place through them. So, to be fair, I wanted to reflect some of their feelings rather than mine, you know. I think you do that really well, I and mean, I think that makes it a much more powerful statement, you know, y- even more so, because you do show there's a lot of nuances, there's a lot of points of view, and, um, you know, whether or not a given soldier wants to be there, of course, they are there, and, and being there, uh, clearly they want to come out ahead and, and survive, and achieve their goals and i think you reflect that well too and i and that shows some real artistic honesty i think well it's also really interesting you know to to work on the points of view that are not actually your own because one of the problems of this country right now is that you know people have opinions strong opinions oftentimes and they can't get into a dialogue with people who have opposite opinions Whereas growing up in, in Ireland, where there was a real political divide, where people had actually been killed in a civil war in the 1920s and the political parties of the time I was growing up in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, were they were still um, split on those political lines. And then you add to that that you have actually real socialists and 
communists in Ireland and farmers' parties and all types of parties there. And you could be living in a street with 10 people with very different, 10 different houses with almost, you know, opposite points of view. But you had to get on. You had to be able to. It was a, a communal society. So people lived together and worked together and had very different political views. You, but you had to get along. I mean, Republicans and Democrats are to an outsider, and I'm not really an outsider anymore, are so, you know, center to right wing that to someone from outside, there's not really a lot of difference except in just sheer shouting at each other. So it it was important for me to be able to show the different points of view, to show a real pro-war point of view, like the Battle of Fallujah. That song is is basically a war anthem. Yeah, I'm looking at that right now, and that's exactly what I was thinking about. Yeah, and that's why I wrote it, was to, it was almost like a Greek uh, epic, you know, like... Right. You know, to reflect what the Greeks were writing about, the glory of battle, and... It was a thrill to write it. It's a thrill to sing it, even though I don't agree with it. Right. Wow. (laughs) You're really up there kicking ass, you know. Your artistic... Just dodging hell in the dirt, you know. Right. Well, it's kind of like it's living vicariously. Yeah. uh, And and it shows real empathy. And we have a lot of um, supporters, a lot of fans who are in the service and they come to the gigs and they're thrilled you know because it's about them for once it's not just your your dumb yellow ribbon on the back of a car that's just stuck there you buy it for 250 making some guy in georgia or somewhere rich yeah right this they're actually hearing their story and that that to me was a lot more important than writing larry kerwin's you know slightly left-wing opinions. You know, it doesn't appeal to me as being particularly dramatic, but you get some kid who's been gone over there at the age of 19, 20, 21, and there's no idea where he's going. All of a sudden, he's thrust into the middle of Anbar province with everyone hating him, and he's wondering, well, what the hell am I doing here? Could you... Would it be too much for you? Or, I mean, it would be difficult or... Just would you not like to uh, recite a, 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 core, a line or two, a verse or two from Battle of Fallujah? Um, I'm not sure. I just had a couple of drinks. Let me tell you the story. the first words? Let me tell you the story of a I'll place without it. glory. Let me tell you a story of a place without glory in a sand pit they call Iraq or Abu Zakawi and his homie jihadis decided to set up shop. The hajis and Qaeda were holed up inside the mosques and the booby track shacks, but the U.S. Marines put a dent in their dreams, sent them halfway to hell and the back. Here's to the old men back in the States. Don't ever let on that they used you. When you're down in the dirt, with your heart in your mouth, dodging hell at the Battle of Fallujah. 
Here's to the Patriots, lined up on TV, falling over themselves to support you. When you're knocking down doors for them DC whores, kicking ass at the Battle of Fallujah. Wow, that's that's powerful stuff. That's yeah, kind of poetry. I, I never said it before. <laughs> I, I like it. It's it gives me. <laughs> I feel I, like you said. It's it's uh, it's the difference between just describing and and news and thirty second news bites and and art being there literature. Um, you know. Well, what, I mean, what TV doesn't get because they're so used to faking it and letting people think that violence is actually you know, a plausible thing. I grew up in Ireland. I, I, I saw the stuff in the north of Ireland. And violence is awful. War is outrageous. To send these young people halfway around the world into a war that was unnecessary is just so beyond the pale you know there was no thought put into it and this president can actually sleep at night it's amazing you know that he seems all right with it huh he seems okay with it yeah i'm agreeing with you he's religious too you know religion can do that to you and uh and he you know i would say he felt he was right in doing what he was doing i'm sure he felt he was right in it and he can sleep at night, but war is not that way. He he wouldn't go to war when he had his opportunity in Vietnam. He got his gig done on a an Air Force base, which he didn't show up for, you know. And I'm I'm not using it as a personal thing against him, but the whole idea that violence or the war is a series of surgical strikes. You see someone with their face burned off. You know, we we get these people coming to see the band, and we we encourage them to come. They're called wounded warriors, right? And usually they come in wheelchairs, and we're all used to that from TV and from movies and whatever, you know. The whole idea that the wounded warrior comes back in a wheelchair. And then one day, one night, this guy arrives in, and the doorman, the security guy, comes rushing over, and he said, you know, one of the wounded warriors is here, and we got to let him in. I said, of course we got to let him in. He said, yeah, but uh, sure, yeah, we're going to let him in. And then I was thinking, well, what, what's the big deal? Guy's walking. He walked over to me, and half his face was gone. It was the most stunning thing because I had to actually stare into his face, and it, it wasn't there, you know. It was totally reconstructed, but it just wasn't there. And he was down with it, no problem, very self-confident guy, in the course of the night he was chatting up girls and everything but he had no face and it was then, it hit me really then, this is war, you can get your face blown off, you know and I was like, wow it took the longest time, it took a couple of drinks before I could actually finally relax and look at this guy without feeling Weird, huh? Well, sure. I mean, that's that's, that's not something you is. see every day, and it's not something you want to see every day. But people think of war as this thing on in the movies, 
they don't even think of it as Rambo. They think of it as some more civilized Rambo. But war is an awful thing. It's basically people killing each other. I think a movie like I, I think more recent movies have have given a, a lot better feel for the reality of it. And of course, it's still still just a movie. But something like Saving Private Ryan, man, you know, I, I didn't come out of that thinking. No, war is clean and surgical. You know that actually that was, that, uh, that first scene was shot in my hometown in on the beach, five miles from my hometown. The really, invasion. Yeah, it was a. They they wanted to find a place that looked like Normandy beaches, and my local beach was the one that they used. That's a gut wrenching scene. Yeah, it's, it, it showed what war is. That war is, and that was nothing as compared to what it is. And that's the feeling I'm getting back from the guys who, and the women who write back. It's like, I got a, an email from a guy today, and he said, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. Well, I'm, you know, there's no problem with me. I, I do jump every time. <laughs> and any kind of an explosion goes off around me. You know, I mean, a car bangs or something. Anytime there's a loud noise, I'm in the air still, but I'm not messed up like all the guys you read about. I'm just airborne whenever there's a loud sound. Well, we have a really good friend who who's also one of our editors, um, Diana Hartman, and her husband just retired from the military, and he he has been to Iraq, and she they lived over in Germany for the last several years. They just moved back to the U.S., and her her central theme is until you see these people, just just what you're saying, it's he, she, the way she puts it is the people who are killed. Uh, I, I mean, they're the lucky ones, and obviously their families aren't, their loved ones aren't. The people who care about them, they're not lucky. But the people who are actually killed are, in a sense, the lucky ones. Because right. she said they focus so much on okay, you know, so what's the What's the death count now? You know, it's at X amount after... It's just under 4,000. After, you know, X amount of years. But but it's tens of thousands that have been injured. And, yeah, and 30, many, many, many of those 30, permanently and, and you know, viciously. And, um, you know, and there's all kinds of, you know, emotional and mental issues um, to go along with the physical issues. And I think that's finally starting to come out now because the, we've been at, war long enough that kind of all the obvious themes have worn out, enough people are coming back or have come back, and you're starting to hear a little bit more about it. But, uh, you know, our, our that's really one of her central themes. She's just outraged uh, by the, you know, the lack of attention to the psychological needs of and the way people are treated. Um, well, was, that, was it ever going to be any different? I mean... She's outraged, that's one thing, but did she think it was going to be any different than that? Well, I'm not sure, but she... I'm not running her down. She's certainly working on it. But this wasn't a war that was planned in any sense. There was nothing planned for the disaster it's become. So it was obvious to me it was going to be a disaster because, you know, you go in, you invade someone else's country, they don't care, you know. What are these people doing here? And on top of everything else, they're crusaders, they're Christians in a a solidly, you know, Muslim world. And if you spend any time in a Muslim country, you realize that, you know, this is their world. They don't want Christians in there telling them how to 
act, telling them how to do. This is a, an echo of the Crusaders, Crusade Wars. And well, that's true. the The other thing is is that you bring up is there's such a huge gap and discrepancy between theory. You know what what may make sense in theory on paper um, at a safe remove, right? Um, is a whole different thing in in practice in reality, and yeah. it's it's very difficult to balance those. And it's, it, it, you know, it's hard to be a leader. Uh, I mean, because there are times when war, I think, is necessary or is the the best course of action. And but it, it so you do have to be you, you can't be paralyzed, you know, with fear uh, about it, and you can't be paralyzed by the casualties but on the other hand you certainly have to take that into account and you have to really be judicious and weigh that and it's it's very difficult it's very difficult to be a a leader um and with with that kind of responsibility literally life and death over people hey let's talk a little bit about the band uh, sure. uh we haven't really mentioned anyone and also since apparently the Chat room is still not working, which is always a, a really nice way to communicate and for people to talk to each other and ask us questions and whatnot. We want to be sure to make sure to welcome uh, people to call in. We'd really be happy to have any questions, any comments, and that's at 646-595-3195. That's 646-595-3195. Nine five, and we welcome your questions, comments, um, fans, whomever. We'd be happy to talk to you. Why don't we talk about the band a little bit? Could you go run through the band members and instrumentation? It's kind of an interesting lineup of of uh, with the trombone and the uh, saxophone, kind of uh, integrated with a, a pretty traditional rock and roll band, almost a clashy kind of feel. But then you got the horns. Well, the band started as a duo. Myself, I was playing electric guitar, and we had a drum machine at the time, and uh, an Irish, uh, an Illin pipe player. They're kind of like bagpipes, except you don't blow into them. They're much more complicated. You use uh, your elbow to fill a bag or a sack, which pumps the air into them, and they have two octaves rather than the one uh, that the bagpipes have. So there were the two of us at first, but I had come from an improv scene. And uh, the trombone player, Freddie Parcells, he thought it was an improv band, so he just came in and sat in one night. And I was thinking, wow, we didn't even invite you, Fred. But here you <laughs> I was are. kind of forward of him. Yeah, and so he started to play the same lines as the Illin Pipes, so it was trombone and Illin Pipes and guitar, electric guitar. And... It sounded to me like, wow, that's the most unusual sound I've ever heard. It's, uh, it was kind of like a Celtic New Orleans marching band, uh, funeral band almost sometimes because we were, you know, doing Irish ballads sometimes. And then the sax player Jeffrey Blyde was with a band called Dexy's Midnight Runners in England, and he was over here. I knew his wife, and she said Jeff's gone up the walls sitting at home. I said, set him down. And bring, bring the sax down. So he came down. He sat in. And then sometimes Freddie, the, pars- the trombone player, couldn't play. But we were playing in Irish bars at the time. They needed four people. That was kind of the rule. 
I would take along on um, percussion, Thomas Hamlin, who was into African drumming. And then eventually we added a bass player. And so it's, it's that mixture. But So it started very organically with basically the horns and the illin pipes being the lead instruments rather than the guitar. I mean, I play some lead guitar too, but the intent was to have it be less, uh, established rock, you know, which the guitar is usually the the main lead instrument. So that was the the genesis of the band. Interesting. It's a very interesting sound, um, and it it does sound very organic. It's very well, very well integrated. And yeah, we want to remind people that you guys are out playing live, really, really quite often. Yeah, we play about a hundred dates a year. Will be this Friday. Will be in Hartford, in Connecticut, at the Half Door on Sisson Avenue, and on Saturday we'll be in Harvard Square in Cambridge in Massachusetts at a place called Tommy Doyle's, which was the old House of Blues there. And then we go out to the West Coast the following week. We're in, ah, yes. Uh, Santa Cruz, uh, San Francisco, and up in Sonora, up in the mountains at a, an Irish festival. And then you're coming my way. You're coming to Ohio. Yeah, you're Columbus. Be in Columbus and uh, yeah, in Cleveland. You know, yeah, I'm in. I'm just outside Cleveland. Oh yeah, we're in Cleveland also. We're in the um, Beachland Ballroom. Yeah, on the 14th. Gosh, I hope I can make it. That would really be great. I wish my schedule wasn't so ridiculous. I have besides running uh, the site and being kind of tied to that and. And do, doing uh, now we're doing a lot of radio, internet radio, which is really fun. It's great to be back on the radio again. I got four kids, and it's just it's hard to get out. What day yeah. of the week is the fourteenth, though? That's that would be great because I've never seen you guys live. Oh, you should come. It's a party. I mean, it's it's political, but it's not. Um... It's a political party. Wait well, a minute. You know, we do a lot of songs <laughs> that are not political too. You know, it's not. I was never of the idea that that there should be a singer up there preaching. I actually hate preaching. Um, what, the Black 47 songs are all allegorical. They're all um, story songs. So you may get a message or you may not. You may be just into the characters in the story and the you know, the rhythm and the horn lines and whatever. It's a, That's art. Now, now, of course, for St. Patty's Day, it looks like you're going to be B.B. Uh, King Blues Club in New York. Yeah, we played that the last three years, I think. Yeah. I, I bet that's a, a, a popular date. Oh, it's, it's, <laughs> it starts early, too. Oh, I bet. So people come right from the parade. The doors open at 5, and we go on at 7. I used to DJ for a living, and man, every St. Patrick's Day, you know, you'd go to the any of the, the bars, any of the chains, you know, especially those with Irish themes, quote-unquote, I mean, we'd start at ten in the morning. Yeah, and go right through. Yeah, it was it was an ordeal. Yeah. Yeah. So the fourteenth is a Friday. So you know, we really should be able to make that. Good. So that, that would be terrific. That's a, great, that's a great club, and it's the east side of Ohio or Cleveland, right? Yep, it is. It's the east side, pretty close to the lake. It's yeah, we've in a uh, somewhat gentrifying neighborhood. In fact, the the club, the Beachland Ballroom, has really kind of been the center, the focal point. Of a real uh, a real change in that neighborhood. Yeah, it was an old Croatian club, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, you're right. If I remember. Very good memory. Yeah, well, I've been I've been there. I've been I know Cleveland pretty well. I know the flats and you know. 
Yes, right. they're used to know the flats. They're retooling the flats. Yeah, the flats used to be great. Uh, Peabody's is down there, right? Yep, sure is. Club. Yeah, my my son has played Peabody's, which that shows you how old I am. Yeah, he was he was in a. He was. It makes me even feel older. He's not in the band anymore. He's graduated. He was in a death metal band, really successful. Actually, they were offered a contract a few times, but they played all the big clubs and opened for all the, you know, touring national, international death metal bands <laughs> coming through the area. But yeah, when he was uh, about, uh, I don't know, sixteen to nineteen, maybe before he went away to college, um, he he was really seriously uh, in a band. They played Peabody's. Oh, you know, a few times a month. Yeah, that's a good, it was a good club. Very interesting. Well, I, I know you're a, something of a renaissance man. You're not just a musician, um, and uh, I think you, you mentioned it briefly, but uh, you're a novelist, right, and a playwright? Why don't we talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, um, I wrote a book. Wrote a pl- I was started in plays in the theater. I wrote a, a play that became kind of successful called Liverpool Fantasy, if the Beatles hadn't made it. And it broke up in 1962, and Paul goes off to Vegas and becomes Paul Montana, becomes a big singer and a big cabaret singer, and then comes back to reform the Beatles, put them on American TV, but there's been no 60s or anything, so it's a whole different political system. and uh, so it's it's about that, and then I, I turned that into a novel later, which is available. You get it at any Barnes and Noble or wherever. It's called Liverpool Fantasy. So you know, I I swing between the two, the three worlds: music, theater, and uh, novels. Are you working on anything now? Yeah, I just got one done recently. It's um it's an immigrant one. It's about the Bronx in the 1980s. Uh, the Bronx is a big Irish emigrant area, so it's it's kind of an interesting way to look at New York City from the immigrant eyes, you know, people who weren't um, integrated into society, but who can still have a, a view of it, you know. So, um, yeah, that's called Rock in the Bronx. Is that is that out now? No, it'll, it'll probably be another six months before it's out. A, a long incubation period between writing a book and actually getting it on the shelves. Oh, yeah. I know. Do you have a publisher, though? Well, actually, my publisher, that's one of the problems. My publisher just got bought by another publisher, so um, I'm not totally sure. But I got a new agent, so uh, we'll see. Yeah. Well, as an author myself, I know how all that works. Yeah. It's very complicated and <laughs> it can be, can be very frustrating. Yeah, totally. And there's not all that much money in it. No, it's, you got to have a big hit kind of to do it, you know. But it's very satisfying. Yeah, it is when the book is finally done and, you know, people... Well, that's the difference between books and plays, I think, that makes books a little easier is because with the play you have that great moment, a real organic moment where it's up on stage and you're seeing it, but there's so few people who actually really see it because once the play is over... That's essentially the end of it. You don't usually, because of actors' equity, you're not allowed to tape plays, usually. And um, so that's the end of it. Whereas with a book, when you do it, it's still on the shelves and people are passing around amongst each other, you know, if they're interested in it. 
That's a good point. That's an interesting point. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a very different kind of uh, ontology, you know, the the reality of it. A book is a physical thing. It's there. It, it's going to last. The words Portable. are there. And the play, I mean, you need you need a number of people to collaborate. Yeah, it's a big job to put on a play. Plays are getting harder and harder to do because uh, just the sheer money aspect of it. I mean, I go into it because I love it so much, but it's uh, it can be really trying, you know. Have you acted as well? No, I never acted. No, I uh, I never really wanted to. I mean, I I do it sometimes, you know, just to. If you're a lead singer in a rock band, you, you're part actor. <laughs> yeah, well, you are, you know. But the thing is, you can change it any time you like. Whereas with the play, you, to a certain degree, you're, you're stuck with the character, and you have the other characters and the other actors who don't want you to really change your part. Whereas to me, doing say you know a normal four week run of that six nights a week. That would drive me around the bend. Oh, I, I I agree entirely. You know when you think and about act, actors tend to be all crazy, and I'm crazy enough. <laughs> I I understand. I mean, it's it really is remarkable when you know you hear so and so this actor that actor signs up for a you know two three year run you know on a Broadway show. Yeah, that's I the mean, end of them. Imagine kind of that. They, the same totally thing. burns them. Yeah. Ah, it's just it's amazing. I mean, you can see why people. One of no matter how much they love the stage, want to vary it with film and yeah. or TV because there's it's so much, so much easier. Definitely, at least physically, I would think. What from an artistic standpoint, what do you get out of the different media? How how are they different for you? What what are you receiving from writing a book versus writing a play versus being a rock star? Well, the music is the most immediate because you're. Up on stage, I mean, you hit that chord. You're you're there in the moment with it, so that's very immediate. And the songwriting tends to be more immediate in that sense too, in that you're writing a shard of an experience. You don't really need to do a full story of it, as you could tell, say, with the song from Iraq, um, Stars and Stripes, about two guys who are pinned down in. Uh, Anbar province waiting for a helicopter to come and rescue them. So it's all about that hour that they're there, that moment, you know. It's very powerful, by the way. Yeah, it's just like it's there, you know, and you're in the middle of it and whatever the song lent is, four and a half minutes or something, you're just totally there for it when you're performing it. With the play, essentially when you write a play, you're you're writing the bones of it, really. Playwriting on unlike what most people think of as how do you get rid of things rather than how do you put long speeches in. It's how do you get it, distill it down, and then you hand it over to a director and actors. And in a certain way, you're you're out of the picture at that point. And now it may, so it may not turn out to be, it will never turn out to be the way you originally saw it. Sometimes it can actually turn out to be better, and sometimes it can, can turn out to be really awful. And you're still blamed for it, even you know if it is, or you're praised for it if you're if it's turning out in a way that's different than the way you saw it and turning out better. So it's there's a certain unreality to it, but it's very collaborative uh, playwriting. You have to be able to give up at some point and give it over to someone else to take it over, right? 
Right. That makes sense. And then with the novel, it's basically you and used to be you and a pencil and a, and a pad. Now it's you and your, your mouse and a computer screen, as you know yourself. So you're in a, you're really it's really you against the page. Right. It's whatever comes out of you. It's very so solitary. It's uh, solitary, but the good thing about it is you can do it at any time. You don't need people around you. Right. Right. So there's that. And of course then the opposite side of that is it's just you. It's it, it the challenge is to for me anyway with with writing a, a book in particular it, it's actually why I was really responded well to blogging you know when I first started I really found it to be a breath of fresh air in, in, in that um, it, it was so quick and relatively informal but with the book you really have to find a routine and you can't think too far ahead um, it's I, I, I can see where it's really daunting for people who just keep thinking about that finished product. How can I possibly write that many words? How can yeah. I possibly write that many chapters? How can I be so disciplined? But once you're into it, if you just do it day to day... Yeah, just, it's a leap of faith. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Incremental. If you, exactly. If you approach it day to day, you know, here's what I'm working on today, and just do it piece by piece, yeah. and try to enjoy the process, then uh, it really can be fun. And yeah. and all of a sudden, hey, you know, you've accumulated a whole book, um, but it, it, those are kind of mental games that you're playing with yourself, you know, psyching yourself up and yeah. and all that. But uh, yeah, I, I, I certainly know what you mean, and uh, I, I'd love. I, ha- I still haven't yet. I, I've written sh- short stories, but I haven't written anything longer form that's fictional. Um, I, I've kind of done things where my my uh, most of the 80s and into the 90s, kind of my, my core job anyway was, was uh, as I mentioned earlier, was a DJ and I owned the DJ yeah. company and it was just very involved. So I have a lot of stories from that time and I've kind of written up a, a fair number of them and fictionalized them to a certain extent because, you know, you've got to protect the, the guilty and the innocent. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I've, I had kids from 1984 on, so there's probably some things that... That are, that are better left uh, fictionalized. But, uh, uh, yeah, at some point, uh, I'd like to be able to kind of string those, you know, what amount to kind of standalone stories together into a a larger piece. Uh, Speaking of kids, I actually didn't know I was on for an hour, but my kid is doing his homework, and I'm going to have to go in the next couple of minutes. To no problem, yeah. I mean, you've, ended up, you've ended up doing 50 minutes. We really appreciate it. Been really, really interesting talking to you. You're a fascinating guy, very thoughtful, uh, and I really wish you the very best on on the new album. Because, it, I mean, sure, it, there's there's politics involved in it, but I think it's it's much more than that. It really is a, a empathetic work of art, and it really is easy to place yourself as a listener, I should say, uh, you know, to to place yourself in the scenes that you create. And I think you really have done a, an exceptional job with that. Well, that's great. Well, it's uh, it'll be out on March fourth, and you know, it's, it'll be in the stores, but people can get it on all the online places, and they can get it on. Uh, they can actually even get it on our site right now, black47.com. It'll go out tonight if anybody wants to call in and get it. We have some advanced copies ready to go. Excellent. Yeah, it's a great site too, black47, the number 47.com. You got the tour information. 
you got some music clips, there's pictures, there's video, the shop, forum, blog. And your blog's interesting, too. I, I, I'm sure, I know you're really, really busy. It's too bad you can't get to it more often because it's yeah, really good it's, stuff. Uh, kind of tricky. Well, thanks so much, man. All right, Larry. Thank you very much. And good luck to the show. Thanks. Well, uh, that was very nice to talk to Larry. Thank you again. Uh, do everybody please check out the band's website at black47.com. Uh, you can also check out the website of their new label, United for Opportunity. That's ufomusic.com. Uh, at either one of those sites, you'll find out more about the new album, Iraq. It is due out this Tuesday, March 4th. Uh, and there is uh, tour information. Uh, you can find out if they're playing near you. And uh, dig around the black47.com a little bit. There's actually quite a, quite a few interesting things on there. Yeah. yeah it was uh, Lisa, are you there? I am. Yay! Uh, it, it was interesting that he, uh, he knew um, the, the, the one people uh, and, you know, had seen the Academy Awards. That was yeah. the... Yeah. I assume you watched the show since we have a I few watched minutes. The whole thing. I managed to stay awake right until the bitter end. I thought it was great. I really enjoyed it. I, I thought it was. I thought it was breezy. Um, I wasn't particularly surprised, I guess, by any of the main things. Um, I was so delighted that that uh, that song won best song from one. So um, yeah. You know, I thought compared to the the stuff from Enchanted, which I. I really didn't like it all. Uh, well, it's it the, so the movie or just the song? The song. They're so, I, I it was so contrived. Yeah, I haven't seen the movie, and um, I, it, I have nothing against Disney animated musicals. There's been a whole bunch of them I've really enjoyed. Uh, I just thought these were kind of unremarkable. They're, it's just very contrived, and, and I think yeah. the difference was seeing something that's kind of arch, and, and I'm sure they fit well in the film. My kids have seen it. I, I haven't seen the access. It's not on DVD. I'm, I'm sure I will when, when it's out on DVD. And over and over and over again. Over and over and over again. Over and, and, of course, now uh, you know, we've got to switch over to Blu-ray now. Uh, the, the word has come down from heaven that, uh, that, that yeah. Blu-ray is the way to go forward. So... Uh, yeah, because so far I haven't seen any Disney's on in the in the HD format because they're all on Blu-ray, and <laughs> I picked the I picked the wrong horse when we got our HD DVD player back in in December. But I don't really regret it because I, I I love that player, and we've watched what we've watched, and the player plays any other DVDs other than Blu-ray anyway. So it's not like you know it suddenly becomes obsolete. And it upsamples them to your it HD upsamples DVD them resolution. very well, ex exactly, very very well. So it's, I mean, it's really a you know uh, exceptional player anyway. And, and so that, that's what you're telling yourself to help. That's what I'm playing, telling myself. I mean, <laughs> compared to the prices now, I paid too much. There's no question. I paid. I had a great deal at the time, but it just shows you how quickly things can change. Anyway, now I think they're they're giving them away, aren't they? <laughs> they pretty much are. The, I, I just saw Microsoft the the Microsoft uh, the one that they the Xbox 360 player. Right, fifty bucks. Did you see that? <laughs> oh my, that's something. But uh, <laughs> I'm, very, I'm very pleased that for once I convinced Jim not to be an early adopter. <laughs> you know, uh, we're, we're always like the first kids on the block, and you know what happens. You know, you pay. $500 for something that next year you can get for half the price with twice the features. 
I, you know where I am. I'm, I'm not. I'm not as cutting edge as he is. And of course, you know. I mean, we. That's what he does, and he's um, for a living too. And and he, you know, he's a tech guy. We know yeah. that. But uh, I, I'm not that far. But I do find myself more recently because in the last. See, you know, my background, you guys know, I, I was a DJ all those years, and I had really good equipment. It wasn't, you know, I mean, it's kind of standard stuff for DJs, but still, I mean, it was loud, very powerful, um, you know, well-maintained, because that's what I did. That was my job. I had to have real good equipment. I had to maintain it well, had to be durable, had to sound good. So, you know, I had a lot of stuff, and then when I stopped that, you know, kind of in the process of uh, getting divorced and moving back here and all that, I shed most of my equipment, and then I was kind of hunkered down, starting my new life and being a writer again and getting back into TV and radio and all that, none of which pays squat, let's face it. But, uh, you know, fun, interesting, self-fulfillment, self-development, all that good stuff, but I didn't have a bunch of money is what it comes down to. And not that I have a bunch now, but you know, I have a little more now than I've than I've had for for the last fifteen years anyway. So uh you know, I find myself uh it, it, my my midlife uh averting a midlife crisis by being really kind of interested in audio visual technology again and and it's fun and but you know Don said the other day, Man, you're you're getting obsessive about this and, and she's right, you know, because you you do. You feel yourself being pulled into it, and at first, oh yeah, that's good enough. That's good enough. But then, as you learn more and you research more, then man, you want to get right up to that cutting edge. Yeah, I want to hear that. I want to participate in that. I want to see that. But like you say, Lisa, I mean, it's just too expensive to be that first wave. You got to at least wait, you know, one wave. You know, come along uh, in the second wave because then it's it's the bugs are out. It's a lot cheaper. You know, usually that first uh, wave, it doesn't work all that well anyway. Yeah, this is true. So anyway, back to, uh, we digress, but back to Enchanted. I'm sure, I've heard it's really good, and the kids loved it. Lily really has pretty good taste, pretty sophisticated taste. My dad, she and my dad go to the movies, I mean, almost weekly, especially in the summer and, and during vacations. I mean, they go all the time. And pretty much, you know, when any acceptable movie comes out, they go see it for kids. And so she has, you know, pretty sophisticated taste for an eight-year-old, and, and we got a bunch of DVDs, and we have cable and all that, too. So she's seen an awful lot of stuff, and she really liked it. But uh, I'm sure those songs fit fine, you know, within the context of the movie. I, I sure don't think they needed to nominate all three. They could have represented, you know, two other films, I think. Rather than three from one movie, uh, but but it's it's it feels very jokey. They felt kind of jokey and artificial, you know. And the difference was, uh, you know, the the one song. I mean, it was just beautiful and the interplay of their voices. And I mean, it, you, it couldn't be more. Couldn't have been more real. Yeah. And there couldn't have been more of a contrast between the artificial, you know, artifice, uh, showbiz Hollywood, Disney, you know, all these archetypes. Um, and, and then, you know, Irish street musicians on the other end of the dial. And uh, it was real nice to see them win. So what else stood out in your mind about the show? Um, I I really like John Stewart a lot as a host. Um, I, I've been missing Billy Crystal all these years since he stopped doing it. Uh, I don't think anybody's really been great at it 
I, I really thought Billy Crystal was kind of like the pinnacle of, of Oscar hosting. And, you know, if the host is boring, the whole show just, like, totally drags. Because listening to people, you know, saying who's coming on, who's nominated, isn't really a, a huge, big thrill. Um, and I think I think Stewart's uh, kind of making it into his own gig now, and I, I kind of like that. I like him, too. A uh, uh, nice blend of of being uh, convivial and friendly with, with some edge, too. Yeah, yeah. I think it's kind of a hard line to walk because you have to be sort of deferential to the stars but not too deferential. Exactly. It is hard, and, and most hosts come down too far one side or the other. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Well, that, that music is our warning. We've, uh, we've got a very few seconds to go. Well, I'll just close out by saying this has been BC Radio Live. We broadcast live every Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, so please visit us at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio, and we will talk to you next week. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.